Hey everyone, and welcome to this special feature interview edition of Risky Business. I'm Patrick Gray. And I got a call last week from someone at Australia's Home Affairs Department asking me if I'd like to interview the Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill, alongside Kieran Martin, the founding director of the UK's NCSC. They were both going to be at an event and uh, would have a bit of time to chat to me. And I've been trying to pin down an interview with Claire O'Neill for a while. So uh, obviously I jumped at it. So on Friday, I spoke with Kieran and Claire for about 40 minutes. And that's what you're about to hear today. So a bit of background on Claire O'Neill to start with. She is the Home Affairs Minister in the Australian Government. And this is a position that would be referred to in some countries as the Interior Minister. But she's also the Minister for Cybersecurity and the first Cabinet member to hold that position. The funny thing is, as the line from Clerks goes, she wasn't even supposed to be here today. Uh, Tim Watts was the Labor Party's shadow cybersecurity minister and was supposed to be uh, the cybersecurity minister in the in the current government. But after the election, he wound up being shifted into the position of assistant minister for foreign affairs. And Claire O'Neill was given the responsibility for the cyber portfolio. And so here she is in a portfolio she wasn't supposed to have when all hell broke loose in the Australian cybers. Uh, There was the Optus hack, the Medibank data breach and extortion attempt, the Latitude finance hack, and so on and so on and so on. It became a front and centre political issue. Uh, And then something kind of unexpected happened, which was Claire turned out to be very good at being the cybersecurity minister, considering, you know, it's a discipline and a field she didn't have prior exposure to. Uh, She also made a lot of fans in the InfoSec community here for calling Optus out for using a very tired corporate PR response to its troubles. And Claire called them out on the ABC's flagship current affairs show, 7.30. Here's that clip. Well, you certainly don't seem to be buying the line from Optus that this was a sophisticated attack. Well, it wasn't, so no. She also embraced the Release the Hounds doctrine, standing up a joint federal police and ASD team tasked with disrupting ransomware crews and high-impact cybercriminals. I'll give you less background on Kieran Martin, uh, but he was indeed the founding director of the UK's NCSC and is consulting to the Australian government as it develops its new cyber strategy, which is obviously a topic that we talk about in this interview. So I'll drop you in here and I started off by asking Claire and before anyone gets mad, she did actually ask me to call her Claire. Uh, I started off by asking her what we actually know about what happened at Optus and Medibank because the public doesn't really have much detail on what happened in these incidents. But does the government know? And uh, here's what she had to say on that. And just a quick note before we get going, uh, Kieran and Claire were both sitting in front of a laptop to record this interview. So the source audio wasn't, you know, splendid. Uh, I did feed it into Adobe's audio enhancer and it, and it did a good job. But this does sound a bit weird in a few parts. Um, but yeah, here is Claire O'Neill to kick things off. The Australian government is far more involved in national level cyber incidents than the public probably realises. And in fact, you know, a lot of your listeners would know, Patrick, one of the first phone calls that's usually made by a company in distress is to the Australian Signals Directorate, which is home to really, you know, the best cyber professionals in the country. Um, so we we know a lot, um, but I just want to um, address something really important here, which is that should government be the only holders of that knowledge? And one of the things that I really feel strongly with Optus and Medibank and Latitude and Ebsworth and many other national events that perhaps didn't make the headlines so much 
is that these are not private events that affect private companies. And one of the really amazing things about cybersecurity is the way that we see, you know, things that would have been regarded as the domain of private sector companies now becoming very much of public interest because they are holders of data or runners of systems of national significance that are so powerful that if something goes wrong, it is a national security incident. And that is how I would classify Optus Medibank Latitude and Ensworth. Yeah, sure, these are um, cybersecurity incidents in private companies, but when you are holding personal information about literally half of the Australian population, you own a data set which is not just of concern to you and not just of concern to individual customers but of national interest. Yeah. So I just say that the, one of the things we're thinking about in the cyber strategy that we're developing at the moment, which is trying to um, lay out a framework and a pathway for Australia to become the most cyber secure country in the world by 2030, which is my goal and aspiration for us. Part of that is thinking about how we are going to make sure that we actually learn from these incidents, not just so Optus can learn from their incident and have better cyber security, but so the whole country can. And bringing some more transparency to those conversations is something that's really important to me. I mean, that's specifically why I asked you about that. My colleague, Tom Uren, who writes a lot about government affairs for us, uh, has been banging the transparency drum very loudly for, for quite a long time now because, you know, it's great that the government has some insight into what actually happened in those uh, uh, cases, but there is obviously a benefit in sharing that information with the wider business community so that people mm -hmm. might learn uh, uh, from the mistakes of others. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, you know, at a principal level, 100% agree with that. So I think there's some work we've got to do around um, post-fact cyber events and, and how we can all learn from that. If I can just mention something else that's really important to how the Australian government's lifting its own um, performance and um, management of these issues is the appointment of the National Cyber Coordinator. So that appointment was just made a few weeks ago and um, we've got a really um, brilliant guy, Darren Goldie, who's performing that task. One of his main jobs is actually making sure that we as a country learn from cyber events. And they're not always just, you know, events that occur against one company. Sometimes you've got a log 4J example or one of those where we're going to need to learn across the whole economy on something that affects many businesses. But we don't really have a feedback mecha mechanism at the moment. What we've got is a cyber industry that kind of reflects the old school thinking about cybersecurity, which is it's about individuals and companies not about the nation and not about the economy um, across the country. And um, so Darren is working at the moment on how he's going to make sure that we get really clear feedback for citizens, for companies, for organisations on things that don't go wrong. Um, that go wrong. Like right now, if you just look at the Optus example, um, you know, they've done, a, they've done a review of what happened at Optus that no one else is going to get to read. And I'm just mm. not sure if that's the best way for us to manage well, this issue. But it's also, it's also a difficult problem for a government to fix, isn't it? Because, you know, you put, you, if you start putting mandatory reporting requirements into law or regulation, that can, have all, that can also have second order impacts that aren't great in terms of forcing companies to reveal too much about, you know, how their networks are structured and things like that. Uh, you know, it... it it's something that sounds terrific, more transparency, but when you get into the weeds on it, it is actually quite complicated, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, it is complicated, but, uh, you know, that shouldn't stop us. <laughs> yeah, well, that's yeah. Uh, amen, All right. I would say, Patrick, is like just, just moving away from the somewhat controversial matter of um, specific cyber events and what happened and who did what and when, if I can just broaden it out, we actually don't have a very good picture right now of the nature of cybersecurity in our country. So we don't have, um, we've got a voluntary reporting mechanism through ACSC for when you're under cyber attack, um, but 
what we know from talking to individual companies is that this is a much bigger, more widespread problem than any of the current evidence would suggest. So we've got National Australia Bank last year told us they're subjected to 50 million cyber attacks a month. The ATO, subject, the Australian Taxation Office, subjected to 3 million cyber attacks a month. That is worlds apart from what are the publicly reported figures. So if we don't have a real um, like clear picture of what this problem is in our country, I don't think we're going to be able to solve it. So part of it is building building that up and making sure that when things do go wrong, we take those opportunities to learn from them because they are nationally significant events, not just events for single corporations. I mean, th- th- those metrics that companies tend to cite of, you know, 50 gajillion attacks in over a certain period, <laughs> I mean, those metrics tend to be quite problematic. I, I just can't, uh, you know, I can't move on without actually uh, 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 saying that, mentioning that because, um, yeah. you know, quite often that might be, uh, you know, alerts triggered by automatic automated attacks and whatever. It all depends how you define an attack. But nonetheless, we don't, we don't you know, there's a lot we don't know and there's a lot we don't see. Yeah. Yeah, agree. Yeah. So, look, one more thing I wanted to speak to you about quickly. Well, a couple of things quickly, uh, and then we can move on to talking about the strategy. Uh, obviously, there was the big announcement in the wake of the the Optus and Medibank stuff that um, there would be a you know joint task force stood up, uh, which would be which would consist of the Australian Federal Police cooperating with ASD to target and disrupt um, cyber criminals. Uh, we've seen actions from the FBI and the United States since then. They were probably doing more than they said, but uh, you were very much at the forefront of of governments uh, coming out and saying, "No, we're gonna we're gonna go kick some teeth." Um, since then, though, we haven't had any follow up from the Australian government saying, "Well, here's how it went." Uh, you know, we were able to do X, Y, Z. I mean, in the case of the FBI's disruption of the Hive ransomware group, you know, we got some detailed reporting on that. We got some transparency. So my question is, what can you tell us about the success or lack of success uh, of, of, you know, this task force that was stood up in the wake of these events? Yeah, thanks. Um, So uh, I think your listeners would have heard we we, um, engaged the ASD and the AFP in a proper institutional manner now in hacking the hackers and what you're talking about there is is correct. The goal and objective is um, pretty singular and that is to impose costs on people who might try to do Australians damage. Um, so that um, that project is, is going very well. I mean, I get uh, obviously really detailed reporting on what it does, which I can't share with you and I'm sorry about that. It's just these are intelligence operations that are um, quite secretive. Um, I, but, I guess I guess I'm just wondering why yeah. that is because they are as much as they are being conducted in concert with an intelligence agency, they are law enforcement actions. And I understand that it would be difficult to find the right balance between secrecy and transparency on this. Okay. But you know, we have not heard anything really, and it was an mm-hmm. announcement that was made, you know, with great fanfare and fair enough. But when mm-hmm. will we actually get to learn, at least in in a broad outline sense, what has actually been achieved? Um, well, I mean, I can provide a bit more information into the public realm about it, Patrick, um, but uh, it's probably not going to ever meet your um, potentially insatiable <laughs> desire for detail on 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 what um, what these people are up to. Um, I mean, we can certainly talk about the resources that are going into that, and it is a very significant effort, and it is going to be ultimately, um, I think, really meaningful for the presentation of the threat for Australia. It sits up in my mind alongside... Um, something else that we've seen that's really important, which is some very big Australian companies refusing to pay ransoms uh, when they uh, when uh, attackers have come for them. Uh, but, you know, uh, t- take your point there, we can provide a bit more transparency about what's going on. But, um, you know, these are genuinely 
um, extremely professional, world-class intelligence officials that are doing this work. They are very busy um, and I'm really proud of their efforts. And, and let me see what I can do in terms of giving you a bit more specifics. Well, that, that, that would be wonderful. Um, so let's <laughs> talk a little bit now about uh, strategy stuff. Oh, actually, there was one more question. This, this kind of dovetails with the strategy a little bit, actually. Uh, I'm not sure if you saw, but in the United Kingdom, there is a new regulation coming into effect soon which will make banks liable for fraud losses, right? And obviously there are all these operations. I mean, you know, you would probably call them cyber adjacent. Um, so these might be telephone scams and various, you know, uh, internet-based scams, business email compromise, things like that. Uh, regulators in the UK have just said, that's it. Uh, from now on, banks are going to be responsible for these losses, which will force them to address the problem. Uh, and they are best probably the probably best placed to actually fix this this issue is something similar being considered for Australia uh, and I and I ask you this question knowing that this is perhaps outside of your portfolio given that it would be a financial <laughs> regulation well um terrific uh, it is a bit outside my, my portfolio but thankfully um, you know other ministers and I do uh, are conversant <laughs> and do talk about these things so um the, the part of this that, that does belong to me is perhaps the um, more cybersecurity end of this conversation and the um, one of the principles that we're using to drive the work that we're doing in the cyber strategy is trying to push responsibility for cyber protection onto the actors in the economy who can most yep. manage them. Um, well, this is know, this is why I asked this and said, well, it's kind of about the strategy, but not really, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, so in terms of responsibility for, for, for fraud, not so much, but... Um, you're right in that these companies do have much more power and control over this problem than you know the the customers that that they serve, and we should be um, forcing them, I think, to take more responsibility for what goes on from a cybersecurity point of view on their networks. So one of the um, really important conversations that we've been having, and Kieran's here with me, and he's been helping us a lot with this, is thinking about. Um, how we so the the people in Australia who have more information about cyber threats are you know the big providers of telecommunications of banking of other you know big providers of infrastructure and they also have the most capacity to do something with that information so we're really having a good conversation with some large Australian companies at the moment about what uh, they believe their obligations should be with regard to aggregating information about what's going on in cyberspace and then acting on it. Um, so this is something that I think we'll um, maybe I'll come back on once the cyber strategy is launched and talk to you a little bit more about the specifics. But these are the sorts of things that we're thinking about in the context of the cyber strategy. That's an interesting one to start off with because you know something that keeps coming up when I've spoken to people at Home Affairs about this is there's a lot of consultation happening in terms of what should be on the in, in the strategy and you know some used to, some actually quite useful uh, suggestions coming forward. Yeah, I mean, hopefully more than more so, <laughs> more than even useful suggestions and, and actual policies. Um, mm. So yeah, we're we're actually um, kind of getting to the pretty late stages of of work on that strategy, and it is thinking about um, uh, like a very diverse range of topics, but um, things spanning you know small business and how we're going to help small actors in the economy confront these challenges over to how we deal with the cyber skills problem, how do we create a better ecosystem for cybersecurity firms here in Australia, which we, you know, very fervently want to support and grow. Um, and then, you know, one of the really big things is thinking about the nation itself. Cybersecurity is not a problem that we are going to resolve by teaching every, you know, teenager and grandmother in the country what two-factor authentication is. We need to um, get people to take responsibility for their own cybersecurity, but there are lots of risks and challenges that they just can't manage themselves. 
And um, so what do, what are our expectations for what big companies should be doing in Australia about this problem and how can we make sure that they're properly, you know, laid out in regulation and law and adhered to? Now, uh, sitting next to you is Kieran Martin, the uh, founder of the uh, UK's NCSC uh, turned currently uh, international man of infosec mystery and <laughs> potato crisp connoisseur. Uh, Kieran, thanks for joining us. I'm um, just like cybersecurity celebrity. That's my, uh, you know, global cyber celebrity. If, if there's such a thing, Kieran, is it? <laughs> now, the minister just mentioned that you are advising uh, on this. Uh, I wanted to ask you, though, uh, and, and I think you're very well positioned to answer this question, in that you have been exposed to, you know, regulations and, and, and government activities in a, in a number of different places. I imagine that Australia uh, has both some opportunities and some limitations in in what it can do, given that by population we are such a small uh, uh, country. In your mind, how is trying to construct a cyber strategy for a country like Australia different uh, to, yeah, I mean, you know, the United States has an awful lot of might in terms of being able to regulate a lot of the technology industry because that industry is based in the United States. It also has massive procurement power, which is a lever it can pull. But, you know, when it comes to Australia, you know, what, what are our unique sort of strengths and weaknesses, do you think, when it comes to being able to execute on a strategy like this? There are a lot of strengths. It is a, by international standards, wealthy, highly digitised well-educated, um, English-speaking country. It's part of the Five Eyes Alliance. It's got world-class, um, Australia's got world-class security services, as the ministers already uh, said. It's got some brilliant cybersecurity skills and uh, talent and a very um, credible set of agencies that are you know, hugely credible in the Five Eyes community. Um, you know, yeah, it's not the US, but that's uh, having dealt with UK public policy and cybersecurity for a very long time. You know, we go through the same, every other Western country goes through the same problem of not being able to regulate the main providers of the of the technology in, 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 in that way. But you can build partnerships. And of course, we have um, both countries, the UK and, the, and Australia, have a deep and enduring security partnership with the, um, with the US. I think frankly, some of the strategy, if I look at the pace with which Australia's developed the strategy and the smoothness of it, it may not feel like that always, um, I'm sure to um, political <laughs> leaders. And you, and you go, I mean, the US have just published a strategy and you, you, we know because it's all uh, you know recently out in the open, that's a really, really complicated process because you know the size of the US government has its drawbacks as well as its, um, yes. uh, as, as well as its strengths. Yeah, I mean, the US government is not known for being particularly agile. Let's just put it that way. So, uh, and, and of course, so, you know, it can be, and I think, you know, the Westminster system has its advantages in that, for example, if you're trying to do things, one of the big pillars that you know, Claire's working on about improving the security of government and public authorities, you know, it's just smoother to you know, mandate things to, um, to just to develop best practice and so forth. So there's an awful lot of things that um, Australia can uh, can do. Also, I think actually, you know, the way the tone is being set in in recent months is is really helpful. I think right now, the way I mean, whatever led to uh, Medibank in particular, which I think is for me is the, by far the most serious of all of the. Uh, big uh, incidents that have happened here um, in the last year or so. I think the world, and genuinely mean this, owes Australia a debt of gratitude for the way um, the country collectively, the company, the government, the media, um, the whole sort of civic society held its nerve over the Medibank ransom. Because if there was ever a temptation to pay up and make it try and make it go away, it would have been it would have been then. I think if you're seeing now, we haven't talked about Move IT and Clop and all of that, but we see you know. 
I think at the last count, I saw 378 organizations with 20 million personal data sets in dozens of countries. I mean, the first one, uh, the first victim disclosed was the BBC. I remember explaining on the BBC and interestingly to BBC producers who were booking me and so forth, you know, when the question about should you pay came up, it was it was incredibly powerful to be able to talk about MediMind, mm. you know, and say, look, there's the data set. And what Australia did, when we all um, owe you a debt of gratitude for this, Australia successfully devalued, literally devalued drastically the value of that data set as an extortion weapon, just by the way it was managed. You know, saying you know, uh, very clearly about how it would be, how the data would be dumped. It would be in the dark web, not on the open internet. The responsible way in which the discussion was had about, you know, it's completely in the public interest for the media to report on the severity of the breach, but it's not in anybody's public interest for anybody to go there looking at individual data sets. You at that point extremely powerfully, uh, Claire. And I think, you know, the criminal thugs who did this, their bluff was called successfully. I well, think I, I, I think it goes beyond that, and as I understand it, there was limited, but you know, there was a there was a vague hint of a bit of bureaucratic infighting when, um, you know, the government was scrambling to respond to this, and that evaporated the moment that this group decided to publish the personal details of women who had uh, terminated pregnancies, and that was it. Everybody was on board at that point. The the, yeah. the government, all of its agencies, were a unified front because collectively. The entire country just decided these people were assholes who needed a kick in the teeth. And I think that's really, really powerful. So then I was sent to the BBC, for example, said, if Australia can hold its nerve over that, you can hold your nerve over a bit of payroll data. I mean, quite simply, you know. Mm. Um, so I think it was, it, was, it, was, it was really, really good. Just to pick up on a couple of the other points that have come up as well, I think it is transparency around uh, disclosure of incidents. There is good practice there. I mean, I think you can, you know, it is complicated, as Claire said, but you can find ways of making this work without without being a sort of hacker's guidebook. I think yes. Ireland did that very well over its health services executive. If you look at that report, it's a really, really rich yeah. review yeah. for other organizations. My, my, my colleague, uh, Tom, is a massive fan of that report and has cited it multiple it's a times. Brilliant, right? you know, yeah. and, and so you can do this. I do think that, you know, um, on the offensive side, you know, I mean, uh, quite a lot of what the US does is not disclosed and occasionally, and let's basically you know the FBI have been at this for a very long time, uh, you know, occasionally um, there's a big operation, but, you know, the US doctrine has got persistent engagement. They do it all the time and they don't talk about it. Well, but much, it's, so. it, I mean, the, the targeting <laughs> yeah. has shifted around a little bit and there's a little bit. also the tradecraft that they're using is has has shifted right because where yeah. it might be okay we take over a c2 now it's like okay yeah. we're prepared to execute code we're prepared to execute commands like there has been i think in one of their their botnet takedowns they actually identified victims in the us and then snail mailed people to ask them for permission before they removed malware from their devices and so there have been some changes there but that brings up an important question for claire which is you know what you did in terms of publicly announcing this sort of hackback policy was it was the first time we'd seen a political leader do this so unambiguously. Previously, like as Kieran points out, this is the sort of stuff that was happening, uh, but more in the shadows, a little bit quieter. Uh, you know, did you at that at the point that you sort of made this declaration that state resources would be employed in this way? Did you? And it's a strange question, I know, but did you realize the significance of that when you were doing it? Yes, because. The the first six months I was in this role, I feel like the country went through a complete transformation in how we think about cybersecurity. 
And I feel like because I happen to be the first minister, um, the first cabinet minister with responsibility for cybersecurity, I had this very special role of trying to lead what the new approach needs to look like, given how fundamentally unprepared we were for Optus and for Medibank and how profound the effect on the Australian community was. So I think I very much felt at the time that this was new. And certainly, you know, when I look at the previous five years, say, I don't see a minister ever having been as involved in cyber incidents as I needed to be in Optus and Medibank. And I can talk a little bit about no, why we, that we wasn't. we had seen, you know, uh, Alastair McGibbon, actually, uh, yeah. as an advisor to Turnbull. So it wasn't it wasn't a, a minister in that case. I mean, one thing we do have to credit the previous government for, though, is the changes they made to laws that allowed ASD to be used uh, against criminal uh, syndicates. I mean, they, those laws were actually kind of important in these cases, weren't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, that's exactly right. So I think, um, uh, I think there's some um, there's some things that the former government did which I would absolutely credit. I mean, mm-hmm. it wasn't that nothing happened in cybersecurity. I think we we were about five years behind when we took office. But I I, I say that knowing that some important things did happen. Um, and this links back actually, Patrick, to your question before about how Australia and the US are different here. And I just want to come back to what I think is actually our most unique offering to the world in cybersecurity. And that is the ability of the Australian parliament to regulate in quite important ways about how we manage this problem. Um, When I explain to my equivalent ministers, even in the five eyes about what the Security of Critical Infrastructure Act, for example, allows me to do, allows the ASD to do, They just about fall off their chairs. Yes, like, you can do. You can compel them to do a certain act or thing, yes. uh, which is the uh, the legislation. And I and I love this. And it is such a uniquely Australian thing when yeah, there's pushback yeah, from industry, and then they say, "No, we're just going to write a rule that says we can compel you to perform a certain act or do a certain thing, and that's going to be the wording of yeah. the bill." And it does make people fall off their chairs. But I guess yeah, I would have. I, I could have done. I could have had some. I could have had you, some. You, I could have had some. <laughs> there's, there's that. So, so when I, we, we, as you can imagine, of course, work a lot with our five eyes partners, and we work in particular with the US because they, um, you know, since the Biden administration has been in, they have so many incredibly senior people who are pushing, pushing, pushing on the security front. So we work with them a lot, and the, the way that I think about it is, in a simplified way, the US has got procurement power that we could only dream of. They are probably the only Western country in the world with genuine ability to reshape the technology market. They, they can't legislate in the way that we can. No. Their system of government is just completely different. And we, we think a lot um, as two countries about how we can use their power to get the um, outcomes we need and for Australia, how we can use our laws to get things that they couldn't possibly legislate for. Just one thing, Patrick, that your, your listeners, for those of you that know the Security Critical Infrastructure Act well, um, it's important for me to um, explain to people how that was useful and not useful in Optus and Medibank in particular. So... Yes, um, the Security of Critical Infrastructure Act um, gives the government great powers to engage in a cybersecurity incident. The problem with the act is at the moment, the way that it defines a cyber incident is just a technical event. And once the technical event is over, basically those powers pretty much evaporate. Which doesn't cover things like blackmail, I'd imagine. Yeah, exactly, Mm. exactly. And so I think this is, you know, like there's a number of very important conceptual shifts in cybersecurity that have occurred over the past couple of years. One of them is just how we think about cyber. Previously, this was the domain of, you know, people who knew a lot about technology and it was considered a very niche technical area. 
Cybersecurity isn't really about that anymore. If you think about the incident response role that I've played with Optus and Medibank, the technical bit is like the first 10%. The 90% beyond it is about logistics and government systems and you know how we're going to continue service provision for our citizens while systems are down. And so SOCI is sort of written very technically. And one of the things I'm thinking at the moment is how, how do, what, what sort of walls and powers are we going to need to deal with cyber incidents beyond the technical event and how might we be able to make legislative reform, which helps us manage that better. So I imagine this will be incorporated into the strategy. When are we going to see a first draft? Yeah, over the next few months. We are working really, really hard on it at the moment, very genuinely into Kieran. Kieran for his sins has a, a fun day. <laughs> I can so people working extremely hard. Um, uh, sometimes the time zone difference in the UK doesn't matter because they're working very late. So it's um, and, um, uh, it's a great thing. Looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. I, I have to ask you the question too, if you have anything to say to the people who are losing their minds over the fact that $2.4 million has gone to KPMG for consulting on the uh, strategy. Seems to be uh, controversial. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I actually, the, the department decides about contracting and, and that sort of thing. It's actually not something that I have power and control over. All I can say is that this is a problem that is worth throwing a couple of million bucks of at. Yeah. yeah. It literally tens of billions of dollars. I'm not kidding. Like if someone wants to go through the agony of adding up the cost to government consumers and the private sector of one Optus Medibank latitude event, um, go right ahead. But I think you'll find that um, whatever the cost of this strategy is going to be, it's going to pay for itself hundreds of times over. Mm. Um, Patrick, just just before we move on to other topics, I just want to quickly jump in on the ransomware point that we went to a little bit earlier. Um, I don't think that um, Australians actually really understand as well as they could, Kieran, the point that you made before about how significant it was that Medibank didn't pay the ransom and how... Um, you know, really, I don't think there was a legitimate voice in Australia arguing that they should have paid the ransom, and that was really significant. We had such uniformity that these people were horrible human beings who should not get any rewards. And um, for people who aren't as close to these subjects, you know, so often in these ransomware incidents, we have um, gangs or, or hackers who invest enormous amounts of time and money in ransomware attacks it's not like they just jump in one day and demand a ransom the next. They're often on the network for months at a time, devoting you know dozens and dozens of people to the effort. So the cost that we impose on them when we don't pay the ransom is certainly in the millions of dollars, um, and it's very damaging for them. They've just wasted yep. wasted so much time and energy and money. So so and so let me let me ask just, you just very quickly. Um, you know, this is a, a thought bubble that tends to pop up every quite regularly at a fairly regular clip is that uh, governments should ban the payments of, of ransoms. What do you think yeah. of that? I mean, personally, I don't think that's a good idea because if we look at certain ransomware campaigns in the past, particularly the, the example I always use is Garmin, the you know wearable you know smartwatch and, and devices company, which would not exist now if they didn't pay their their ransom. They they even paid a sanctioned entity to get their computers back because the situation for them was extremely dire. But I definitely want to hear your thoughts on whether or not you would support a ban in in, in ransom payments or a conditional ban or you know just what's your thinking on that. Yeah, so I, I um, just just before I answer your question, can I just mention quickly to you just in the um, the Emsworth cyber attack that's sort of been in the news recently. Just just talking with um, with that company about they've publicly said that they didn't pay a ransom that it was demanded of them. Um, just the actions of Medibank 
and the way that the country handled that is basically created a pathway for Australian companies to not do it and to know that that's the wrong thing to do and that there is a right thing to do and that the public, in a sense, will um, kind of incur some costs themselves personally to help the country in a situation like this. So I, I think it's very important. Um, so on your point about ransom, but, but that's, so, that's why I, I ask. Is I wonder if that that yeah. sort of cultural moment means that outlawing these payments isn't really considered necessary yeah. by the government. I mean, that's that's exactly why so I was we, asking. We did a huge amount of consultation on this question as part of the cyber strategy, and I have to say that um, it's pretty hard to find a credible person in Australia who believes in an outright ban on ransom payments. And Kieran, I know you've had strong thoughts on this. Feel free yep. to disagree with me. I'm I'm very interested to what you what to you what you yep. have to say. One one thing I would just say is I think there's a, a few steps if we're to look at that question. There's a few steps that we've got to undertake first. One of them is that we do not have a picture of the ransomware problem in Australia at the moment. We don't have reporting compulsory reporting of ransomware payments. We don't know how much people are paying ransom um, payments. And I think we need to do that. I think, um, you know, a conditional ban is something we should keep an open mind to. Uh, but I think the first port of call for us is let's try to understand what's going on here, provide as much support to we, as we can to companies to not pay ransoms and um, perhaps see where that gets us. So first of all, um, to go back to MediBank, um, I think it was transformative, not just in Australia. It, it didn't just give Australia a pass to Australian companies not to pay. I think it was a global thing. The underlying mood matters. I think in terms of data extortion, I mean, when when systems don't work and you are, you know, a hospital can't admit patients, that's a different uh, problem. But when it's data extortion, I think, um, you know, it's it's been it's been transformative and that matters. In terms of you know, the public policy and should they pay, um, I think it's a really really difficult call. What frustrates me, and this is why I'm I'm pleased um, at what's happening here. What frustrates me, frankly. Um, is that you know serious policy reviews haven't really been done in many countries. I mean, the US just suddenly said after it was pummeled in 2021 with Colonial Pipeline and JBS Meads, you know, at a press conference in September 21, the year just said, no, nah, we don't think it'll work. Whereas, you know, here there's a consultation, there's analysis and, and so on. I'm really firmly of the view, and not just morally, but I think practically the government shouldn't pay. And I know this New Zealand has just said that, you know, as a matter of policy, they didn't pay. The UK public authorities don't pay. But that's quite interesting. Why does it work for government authorities not to pay? It's because government's big and it's got resources, which, you know, smaller companies don't have. So again, you look at the Irish healthcare the thing when they held their nerve. Why was Ireland able to hold their nerve? There were all sorts of problems leading up to that attack, but they actually they handled it quite well because they said, right, we're a national government, we're quite wealthy, we're going to hire everybody, we're going to get all the experts in, and it's going to be more effective to get it back that way because we're going to bring in crowds, right? We're going to bring in everybody else and, uh, and, 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 and so on. We're going to bring in the army. Uh, and they threw everything at it. Now, a small company can't do that. So the one thing I'm convinced of, that a standalone ban on private entities and, that, uh, and nothing else would not work. Mm. You have to have, for it to work, you have to have some form of, or form of support mechanism, which may prove unduly costly and clunky and, and, and so forth. So um, governments shouldn't pay because governments can sort themselves out. They've got the resources and wherewithal to do it. And I think one of the things we should learn from is how governments actually get themselves out of trouble. Mm -hmm. So how do you manage to get a network back up and running smoothly uh, if you haven't paid? And government's a good sort of test bed for that. So that's kind of where I am at the minute. I think that practically on balance, it mostly won't work without a, a, a sort of package of support measures for affected organisations that mm -hmm. we haven't yet managed to develop, if that answers the yeah, question. Yeah, it does. Kieran, do you have some final thoughts for us before we uh, wrap this up? 
So I think um, just on the bit about um, the UK and payments, um, banks underwriting are being forced to effectively underwrite fraud. Uh, as with all headlines, it's worth looking at the detail of that. Um, so, you know, um, it's not, so for example, it doesn't cover this awfully named pig butchering, you know, where uh, international scammers research high, you know, well-off individuals mm. and persuade them to part with investment. It's about when well-known public authority brands are spoofed and so forth. And I think it will be interesting. I think there's some skepticism in the UK about this regulation, you know, about um, the moral hazard of it and, and so forth. And we still need to make sure we find ways of incentivizing people uh, to, um, you know, ensure devices are up to date and that sort of thing, you know, the easy sort of uh, loopholes. And also that um, organizations like the tax authority and so forth, because um, if, if you fall for a scam with somebody pretending to be HMRC or tax authority, then you get refunded, making sure they're still incentivized to protect their brand. Mm. I think that's um, I think that's uh, 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 really important, but just look. I think what's happening here is really exciting. I think um, you know um, in the UK, sort of, um, it's getting on for ten years uh, now. We we looked very sort of closely at how the country as a whole um, uh, did cybersecurity. We asked some questions about look, where's the bit that isn't working that the government can step in, and um, part of that was about incidents. And I think you're already seeing from um, Claire and her department and. Uh, others, you know, a much more activist um, approach in that. Where's the market not working in terms of, you know, product security and so on? I think there's, you know, huge opportunities there. And I think, um, you know, with the US strategy, it's actually quite a good time to be thinking about these things because the US approach is changing. And as you've said in your questions, Patrick, that really does matter. And, you know, the there is a, you know, there's a cyber subset to AUKUS and all of that. You know, there is a there is a deep partnership between the UK, Australia, and um, uh, yeah, and the US on these types of matters. And if we can try and find ways of harmonising that, given that you know both the UK and Australia are significantly smaller than the US, I think it, can be, it could be really, really uh, important. So I'm very optimistic about it. Minister O'Neill, uh, final thoughts. Pat, just one thing I I think I have really learned about cybersecurity since I've been in my job is that. Um, the bit that happens after the cyber incident is often the bit that's not being done well. And so we have thought long and hard about cyber incident response. And the thing that I just could not fathom when Optus and Medibank hit was that we did not have a workable cyber incident response function in the Australian government. Like knowing as was known for many years that a huge company could have a a bust up of this size, there was no um, mechanism for the government as a whole to coordinate their response to something as important and huge as that. So that's something very important to me that we've kind of worked up um, a lot. And you would have seen the national coordinators started to run these big cyber exercises, which is bringing together critical infrastructure providers, regulators, um, and you know everyone who needs to be in the room to talk about what what do we do you know if one of the major banks goes down in a cyber attack how are we going to provide financial services to citizens and that sort of thing so i think that's um really important thing that we're doing that's underway at the moment and the final thing i just want to mention is i have been so struck since i took on this job what a unique asset the um, cyber security community itself is in all of this i don't think i've ever come across a stakeholder group where people are as problem-solving oriented, enthusiastic, excited, um, collaborative 
as this community of people and I meet them always in airports. <laughs> <laughs> I always get stopped in airports by some people. Well, I mean, oddly, and, oddly uh, I mean, you're popular. Like, I, I've been covering this stuff for 22 years, right? And I've never seen InfoSec stan a politician before. You know, it's, I mean, you, full credit to you for actually winning over a group of people who are very hard to win over. What I really do hear, honestly, mostly from people is they stop me and they say, we have been trying to get this problem on the agenda of our board and our senior leadership for 20 years. And now it's there. And for better or worse, seeing me is helping get, get it there, which I, which I hope I am doing and I'm desperately trying to do. But one of the things I just see, like, I mean, what's happened in, in Ukraine, and we haven't really touched on that because uh, we'll, we'll do that in our next chat, Pat, but where where do you find a sector where people just muck in? You know what I mean? Mm. There's such a vibe of national interest and contribution um, here that's just so important to us solving this problem. So I just want to say that to your listeners, Pat, I love this community so much and I really want to work with you to try to make a big difference to this problem if we can. All right. Well, Claire O'Neill, Kieran Martin, thank you both for joining me for this interview. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks, Patrick.